0: Well good morning, my name is Matt, I'm a pastor at City Reform, we'll dismiss our children for Children's Church. We are um, working through a a book of the Bible, The Gospel According to Matthew. Some years we will break for a a special sermon series leading up to Christmas, but this year our current sermon series in, in Matthew seemed so relevant, we've just been staying with it as we move forward. Um, We are moving through a part of this, a uh, a part of the Gospel of Matthew where there's extended teaching by Jesus. This section is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. And this, this, uh, I've said before, I think that's probably the most famous sermon in the history of the world. Um, It contains some of the most notable aspects of Christian teaching. And this week we see Jesus giving to his disciples a form of prayer, which is uh, certainly the most famous Christian prayer. Uh, in the history of the world, often known as the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. Um, we could easily spend weeks only looking at that prayer. But what's often overlooked uh, in the Lord's Prayer is that it's embedded in a larger section of teaching, a section of teaching where Jesus talks about how uh, true spiritual practices build us up in faith and warns us against approaching any of our practices, whether it's prayer, fasting, or, or giving, in ways that don't have integrity, but rather are done for selfish purposes. We'll look at that large theme that stretches through all of these and consider how uh, we can uh, practice our righteousness in ways that uh, truly honor God and bring growth. Reading from Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus uh, begins this section with a warning. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then what follows are, are three examples of practicing righteousness. We can use the word righteous different ways in English uh, as well as in Greek. Sometimes we use it as describing a standing we have before God. And sometimes it refers to things we do, things that correspond to God's character by faith, a person who believes in Jesus has a righteous standing before God. They have a a righteousness that is given by faith alone. But the Bible also speaks of practicing righteousness or doing things that are righteous. Here, Jesus lists three of them, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. Now, these are are prime examples of important things uh, people might do. At this point in time, Jesus uh, was speaking to a Jewish people. Jesus was a Jewish, and when he refers to the scriptures, he's referring to the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Jesus is not saying that giving to the needy and praying and fasting are bad things, in fact, the exact opposite. In each of the cases, he tells people to do them, but he warns about our motives. He warns us that it's possible to have mixed motives, to do a good thing for the wrong reason. I think we could probably relate to this. Some of the things here like public prayer and fasting are not things that, uh, that bring immediate recognition from the world around us. We're probably not tempted to pray publicly a lot thinking, oh boy, my neighbors will think I'm really a righteous person. But you may be tempted to give or to serve or to do works of charity that way. We could do them for good reasons, because we want to help people, because we want to honor God, or we could do them with all the wrong motivation. We could do them because we simply like the feeling that comes from uh, doing something good, or we might think our good works help us on our resume, or we might think that we like people to see us doing things well. Sometimes uh, it's noted that certain celebrities, whether they're sports figures or famous for another reason, seem most interested in doing charitable work when there's a camera nearby. Often charity work can be done, it seems, merely for the photo op. And now, in the age of cameras that each of us have on our own phone, we're all only one selfie away from our own photo op and whatever good thing we do. The warning Jesus gives us can be much more subtle. Let's be honest, we all have mixed motivations, but we can find ourselves doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Instead, Jesus urges us to think of a practice of doing righteous things, doing good things for the right reason, a reason that has integrity where our inward motivations and our outward expressions match together in a spiritual oneness. In each of the cases we're looking at today, Jesus warns us that we can do them for the wrong reason and then gives us instructions about how to conduct ourselves with spiritual integrity. We'll look at each of these three examples, giving, praying, and fasting, and consider how Jesus is encouraging us, instructing us, warning us, to pursue spiritual oneness or spiritual integrity instead of hypocrisy. We'll begin by looking at uh, the example of uh, giving to to those who are in need, and we'll look at prayer and we'll look at fasting. So uh, giving to those in need, Uh, Jesus warns us that we can do it for the wrong reason, which could make us a, a hypocrite. Uh, The word hypocrite uh, comes from a Greek word, and and the Greek word actually captured the picture of someone who was an actor on the stage, an actor in in a Greek play, had a very thick mask. In fact, actually, if you look around this room, you will see in some of the places these remembrances of the Greek masks used in theater. You see them at the top there, they could be a smiling mask, a frowning mask, they were quite simple because it was understood that, the, that the, uh, the actor was playing a part. And what they were expressing was not really them, but they were expressing something else. Now, there's nothing wrong with an actor being a hypocrite in this sense. They're intentionally displaying something that's not their true self. And everyone knew in the Greek play that the thick mask was showing a, a caricature and not how the person might actually feel. You could be playing a sad part in a play, and you're not actually sad, and everyone's fine with it. It's fine to be a a hypocrite in that sense. But Jesus says we should not do our spiritual works that way. We don't want to have the real motivation hidden by an outward facade of spirituality. And as we said before, it's possible to give for all the wrong reasons. Recently, I, I found myself uh, doing this a little bit. I think we probably all have mixed motives on many occasions. I was, I was uh, uh, doing something, a very humble act of service, um, and I won't tell you what it is, um, because if I did, you'll probably realize it wasn't that humble, and it was just poor planning. Um, but as I was doing it, I have to admit, the thought did cross my head, boy, I hope someone walks in and sees me doing this. Then they would think, I'm really really a humble, servant-oriented person, unless they knew better and they would say, boy, he just didn't plan very well, and that's why this is happening right now. Jesus, however, describes a scenario in which those mixed motives begin to emerge, and we begin to do things in the wrong way. He talks about giving to the needy and he says you you might do it in a way that calls so much attention to yourself that maybe literally someone would sound a trumpet before they gave or perhaps Jesus just speaking figuratively but you can imagine a a great procession moving down the the street with all of the press corps following behind them as someone began to go to the local uh, uh, soup kitchen or uh, a a place where uh, poor people were gathered and began to dispense, dispense their great wealth for the purpose of being praised by others. Well, Jesus comments on this by saying, if that is your goal, when people see you and praise you, you will have your reward. It's actually a little bit of a surprising thing for Jesus to say at this point. We might expect Jesus to have said, You hypocrite, you're destroying everything, great judgment will come upon you, but instead he says you will have received your reward. That makes sense when we see the contrast that he draws. He says the contrast is when you give to the needy and you do it in secret, he uses a sort of word picture that your left hand and your right hand don't know what they're doing. Of course, it's an expression, not literal, couldn't be literally true, But he says, you're giving in secret. You're not drawing a display. You don't have everyone, a lot of fanfare around it. When you give in secret, your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, this phrase, father will reward you, is found in each of our three sections. and It actually can be fairly challenging for us to think about. If you give in secret, Jesus says, God will reward you. If you give for a show... At the end of the show, there's no other reward. You've gotten all you're going to get out of it. In fact, you may even be doing great harm to the people that are involved, but Jesus doesn't go there. What do we make of the fact that Jesus promises rewards? My guess is that could be an uncomfortable feeling for some of us. It may seem like God is dealing with trivialities here, dispensing rewards for those people who are performing his tasks. It could seem to lower our expectations of true spirituality. Or perhaps it could make the spiritual life seem selfish or mercenary. Or maybe, if you're thinking in theological lines, we could begin to fear that what we have here is a promotion of earning your salvation or a works righteousness. All of those things could make us steer away from the concept of rewards, but Jesus seems to take the idea of heavenly rewards quite seriously. It is the hinge on which all of this passage works. In each of the three sections, Jesus warns there's no reward for those who do their righteousness to earn favor of others. But he promises that the Father in heaven gives a reward for those who do righteousness in secret. For me, the most helpful observation on this concept comes from an author named C.S. Lewis. In the middle of the last century, he wrote an essay delivered as a sermon called The Weight of Glory. Many of you have heard it referenced, perhaps in other settings. Towards the beginning, Lewis talks about the, the challenge for modern people in thinking about rewards from God. I'll quote, and this is found in your insert if you want to follow along. Lewis said, we must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward that has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it. It is quite foreign to the desires and ought to, that ought to accompany those things. He goes on to contrast it and say proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they're given, but are the activity itself in consummation. That could be a little bit abstract. He gave two examples in the middle. One was the example of a general fighting. He says, if a general fights just so he will get a a place in the government or a place in society, he's misusing his role. He said, what's your goal in going into war? Well, it's to get fame and recognition. Lewis said, you would recognize that's a, a bad reason to go to war. But if a general fights for the reward of victory then it's the proper reward of the activity he's involved in. He uses the example of marriage. He says if a person goes into marriage hoping to get money from their spouse, we'd all say that's a very mercenary way to approach marriage. He speaks here of a a husband uh, who's going to get married because his wife had a great fortune. And we'd say that's that's pretty dishonest. That's hypocritical. That doesn't have integrity. Integrity. But if a person is in love, seeks marriage for the resulting relationship that comes from it, that's the proper reward. Uh, It's sometimes easy for us to get distracted when we go through a wedding and lose sight of what the real goals are. Sometimes people have a wedding not because they want to get married and have a great life together, because they want a lot of attention, don't they? We see thousands and thousands of dollars being given on weddings I found in my own wedding was easy to be distracted. Maybe 20 years ago this spring, uh, I was married, uh, best thing, one of the best things ever happening to me in my life, Um, but on the wedding day, I was really kind of nervous. I was afraid to stand in front of people and I may have told you this before, the story, but I actually found myself thinking so much about what people would think of me as I was getting married. And the truth is, now that I've been in many weddings, I know no one ever remembers anything that happens and they're not really thinking about you anyway. But it was kind of stressful and I made a mistake in my lines. I, I misheard the pastor. I said the wrong thing. Everyone laughed and I felt really embarrassed. And afterwards, my brother-in-law uh, came up to me and as I was going out, he said, Matt, you win the prize. And you know what I thought? This is embarrassing, but I thought... He must mean the prize for the stupidest thing anyone ever said in a wedding. Which is, of course, not what he was thinking. He didn't notice and he forgot a minute afterwards anyway, just like everyone does. He meant, you won my sister. Right? Which is a, as you would all recognize, a true and just reward of a, a wedding ceremony. You get married. Right? 20 years later, no one remembers what anything I said except when I tell the story. Um, uh, in 20 years, four kids, and, and you know, numerous memories later, an actual marriage relationship is a true worthy reward. When we get the wrong reward attached to the right activity, we don't have oneness or integrity, but we become a hypocrite. So what is a just reward for giving to the needy? Jesus doesn't tell us specifically but as we look at the rest of the Bible we can think of many just rewards that would come from giving to the needy. The first and simplest is that you would help someone that your gift would actually benefit them and then it would do it in a way that shows the character of a gracious God who has given us immense gifts. God could be glorified The gift we give could have a lasting benefit, not only in this life, but the Bible challenges our thinking and encourages us to consider that some good works done in faith now have lasting consequences even into eternity. We don't fully understand that, but that teaching is found at many points. We would find growth and deeper humility as we trust God by giving. We would find perhaps closer and loving relationship with someone we help, and we might find the opening of a door that one day they may in turn help us. All of these things would be legitimate rewards, would they not? We wouldn't call someone mercenary who would seek them. We would not say you're selfish when they happen, But if a person seeks to give for their own recognition, they become, Jesus said, a hypocrite. The second example is the example of prayer. Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray and stand in the synagogues and at the street corner. Jesus has no problem with prayer, and he has no problem with prayer in the synagogue, but that was a place where the Jewish people would have prayed. And Jesus said, there's a type of prayer that happens that's a problem. The type of prayer that's loud and ostentatious, it calls attention to themselves. Now, we're less likely to find this in our broader culture, but perhaps in Christian settings, we might find that as we pray, we're thinking more of what people think of us than of what we're actually saying. In many ways, it's the big trap of any, pa- any pastoral prayer, any public prayer at all, when it becomes more for the impression we make on others than for the request we give to God. Those of us who pray publicly know we're often walking on a knife's edge as we seek to pray publicly. Jesus is not eliminating all public prayers, but he gives us this policy. He says the bulk of your prayer should be done in private. You want to know how to make sure your prayer is not a show? Do it where no one can see you. You want, to, you want to know how you're, you're giving to the needy? Can be you make sure it's not a show? Don't let anyone know. That's a really practical guideline that, gives, that, that uh, Jesus gives here. Instead, go to your room and shut your door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, we have the idea of reward, but in this passage, Jesus Jesus pairs it with a second warning. Verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus has two models of prayer that he can refer to. One is the ultra-religious. It has maybe the right words and the right formulas, but it's a show And the second, a pagan form of prayer believes that we will earn our favor with God through vain repetition of saying things again and again and again. And Jesus says true prayer is grounded in relationship. It's grounded in relationship with who God is. It's based on grace, the grace that the Lord Jesus himself will give in his life and in his death. We are children not by performance but by faith. By the mercy of God. And so when Jesus offers a simple prayer, it's contrasted both to the sort of overly formal, showy prayer, but also a form of prayer that thinks God will hear us because of our performance. And so he offers this very simple prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your, your name, and you probably know the rest as it goes forward. Well, how does this bring proper reward? Perhaps it's the easiest of all three. The proper reward of prayer is quite simply an answer to prayer. I think the easiest way to grasp what Jesus is saying is if if you're praying as a show before other people and they see you when your prayer is done, that's the end and nothing else will happen. But when you pray to your Father who is in secret, this God who made the world who redeems people by grace and mercy and calls you to be his children, this God hears your prayer and acts in the world. Not only does God work in the world in response to our prayers, but he works in us as we pray. One of the main things God does as he leads us to express our need in prayer and to wrestle with that need before him is that he changes us. So how does God reward us in prayer? How does God reward us when we pray, God, may your name be hallowed? First, God answers that prayer. People around us may increasingly come to see that his name is holy, that he is holy. But secondly, God uh, answers the prayer by beginning to change our desires Many of you know this from experience. As you disciplined yourself to stand before God, to concentrate your energy on him, to ask that his name would be holy, you begin to realize the holiness of God. The recognition of that holiness is more important than anything else. As we pray that God's name be hallowed, his spirit works in us, and we increasingly become people who desire to see his name hallowed, who treasure the holiness of God's name and want that to be revealed. What happens when we pray for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done? What is the reward? Well, quite simply, God answers that prayer and the world around us changes in ways that we could never control. Things begin to happen. God works above and beyond us to bring his purposes to bear on the world But we also become people who long for the kingdom. We begin to look for ways in which we can be part of God's processes and we receive his work when we see it. What happens when you pray for daily bread? What is the reward? Well, quite literally food. Some of you have been in situations where you didn't know where the next meal would come from and you've seen God's provision but we also recognize God's gifts and many other material resources and blessing. Furthermore, we recognize that as we pray for daily bread, we become more thankful. We begin to see God's hand at work in the many blessings in our lives. We're we're slower to take things for granted and we're quicker to recognize just how dependent we are. What happens when we pray for our debts to be forgiven? If you're a Christian, we know that they already are forgiven. Jesus isn't here describing a reality where we move into and out of forgiveness, into and out of our status as God's children. That's assumed from the beginning. But the real effects and consequences of sin are felt in our lives and in the world around us. Our conscience needs to be soothed when we have sinned. And the vitality of our relationship with God needs to be refired. Furthermore, as we pray for our sins to be given, there's a necess- forgiven, there's a, a necessary connection. The more we pray for this, the more we recognize that we are called to extend forgiveness to others. Notice in verse 15 the way in which Jesus assumes this prayer will change us. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is not suggesting here that our act of forgiveness earns some salvation, but he warns us that an unforgiving heart, a a heart that does not extend grace to others, is also a heart that is not depending on God's grace. The same posture necessary to extend forgiveness is necessary to receive forgiveness. Finally, what happens when we ask God not to lead us into temptation but to deliver us from evil? We find that God is fighting spiritual battles. We can't fight on our own, defeating spiritual powers of darkness. We recognize our own weakness in the face of temptation and we seek God's power to deliver us. We become more aware of our dependency on on God and his power to save. What happens when we pray in secret, not as a show? We receive true spiritual reward. There are answers to prayer. God does in the world and he changes us that we would long long for him and for his kingdom more. Third and finally, Jesus speaks of fasting. When you fast, he says, do not look like the hypocrites. And he goes on to describe a situation where people are quick to broadcast all their spiritual suffering they're doing. Now, we're not a, a particularly a, a fasting culture, at least not in uh, religious terms, but you can imagine all the ways people might be tempted to make their diet known. Did I, did I tell you all the foods I'm not eating and how, how righteous I must be? There are variations of this we could be tempted into. But it, it causes us to notice, first of all, that Jesus does assume that we'll fast. And while we're not broadcasting our fasting to others, it's sometimes helpful to talk about the spiritual practice that many contemporary Christians ignore. Fasting is a helpful way for us to remember our dependency on God and to recognize that our appetites need not control us. Christians who practice fasting know they're not earning something from God, but God is working spiritual discipline in them. God is causing them to long and hunger for what is true and proper and to seek him for help in the world around them. Most notably, at this point, we can remember the ways in which Jesus himself fasted. Only a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus began his ministry with a long fast. There are many things we can learn that probably are meant to be a model for us. We're not all called to spend 40 days in the wilderness fasting as Jesus did, But it's notable that Jesus was tempted at the end of his fasting. Tempted at a time he was vulnerable, but tempted after a long period of learning to control his appetites and direct his desires. It's a bit speculative on our part, but Jesus, as a person who was truly human, in addition to being truly divine, uh, may have learned in the wilderness how to say more quickly, man shall not live by bread alone as he trusted in God through his fast. There's also a way in which the fast of Jesus is very different from us. As we saw in that very passage, the key principle is that Jesus identified with us and that he was righteous in our place. At the end of his life, as Jesus moved towards the rejection, humiliation, and suffering on the cross, Jesus was denied not only food, but water. It was on the cross that Jesus cried out, among other things, that he was thirsty. As the suffering and the weight of his crucifixion rolled in over him, Jesus experienced deprivation and suffering in ways we never will. Jesus, in a sense, fasted in our place. Jesus suffered in our place. And though his public execution was seen by many, the true purpose of it was in secret. The true purpose of the cross was hidden from human eyes. Uh, Those around them saw the cross as shameful and foolish, but Jesus endured suffering for a heavenly reward. What was the reward that Jesus endured for his suffering? It was the salvation of his people. The forgiveness of sins for rebels like me and you, the proper reward for the suffering of Jesus on the cross, his self-denial, in a sense, his fasting is the reward of our salvation and our righteous standing by faith. Hebrews 12 says it this way, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, we can learn from the, fa- uh, the fasting of Jesus how we too can benefit from this practice. But all of our spiritual acts of righteousness, our giving, our praying, our discipline of fasting or something else, all of them flow from the reality that Jesus gave us his righteousness and forgiveness as he suffered for us. It's the foundation of all that we do. We give, we pray, we fast for the reward that God is pleased to pour out on us, but even those rewards are in grace. God's grace is so abundant and so deep that not only does he forgive us and call to be our ch- call us to be his children, but he chooses to take our actions seriously. He chooses to use our giving, our prayers, and our fasting for real benefits in the world. And when we do them for God's purposes and not our own, we can have the joy of knowing there is a true and proper reward, an outcome that God desires where he is glorified and we find our great joy in him. Let's close in prayer.